the offering. <laughs> Yippee! Everybody gets excited about that, right? Uh, I was the pastor of a really large church, and we'd have a pledge drive and do all those sorts of things, and those are fine. We don't do that here, which I kind of like because sometimes that feels like you're buying something. But we do pass the basket, and there's Jerry with the basket, and Lori's over there with the basket, and, and that feels awkward sometimes. Probably feels awkward for you, right, Jerry? It feels awkward for me, because Jerry will walk by me, and I don't ever put anything in it. Um, once in a while, I do, but Susan kind of takes, ca takes care of that for us. Um, and at times, up in the foothills, we put a basket in the back, because it's a smaller group, and it feels so awkward, and we've thought about that at times here. I remember talking to my dad about it years ago because uh, he was a pastor. He said, Peter, never do that because that's the high point of the service. That's like in the temple when they would bring their sacrifices and, and offerings. And, um, and so we haven't. We leave the offering in the middle of the service. But you may not put any money in, in the basket. You may be giving in other ways with your time or your energy. Perhaps you give online. Uh, maybe you watch. You know, we're a small church that's actually a really big church because a whole lot of people tap in online. So if you're watching online, we invite you to um, picture the basket going in front of you. And this is what I want you to do when you see the basket. I want you to just ask the Lord, uh, Lord, what do you want to do through me? And don't feel pressure to put money in the basket, but feel uh, open to what the Holy Spirit might uh, be doing through you. Just so you know, um, we're entering into the summer months when uh, usually giving is tight. We just had a hailstorm that blew out some of the windows in the back and damaged the roof on this building, which we're in, by the way, because it was the cheapest option we could find. Um, but we have a deductible on the insurance po uh, policy. And giving is down a little bit this year over, over last year. So uh, we feel the need. Of course, God is never worried. God is never anxious. And if he wants this church to be here, he'll provide. But I imagine he'll do it through you. So all I'm saying is that when we take the offering, would you worship? Would you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit and uh, simply ask, Lord God, what do you want me to give? And I don't know the answer. That's the, really the wonderful thing, but God will provide. So Lord God, I thank you so very much for the sanctuary. Lord God, I thank you that Jesus said, um, I will build my church. And I know he said it to Peter saying, I'll build it on you. Lord, I think you, you'll build your church on us. So Lord God, use us as you desire and may you be glorified in our giving. Uh, because Lord, I know you're not short of cash. You're not afraid, you're not anxious, we are. And yet you ask us to participate in what you're doing um, because you love us. You're a father and through us, Lord God, you want to redeem this world. Thank you, Lord, for including us in what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I just can't tell you how happy I am that we're all kind of sitting a little closer together. Just, just want to tell you, it just makes me feel better. Like, we're all together. <laughs> And I, I apologize to my introvert friends that this may be stressing you a little bit, but so I just, 
I'm, I, it makes me happy. And so, thanks. I am I'm grateful that um, today we're going to celebrate and talk about the Holy Spirit. Happy Pentecost Day is filed under things I'd never heard for the first 20 years of my Christian experience. So. The most famous of perhaps the scriptures that we would read comes from Acts chapter 2, 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And most translations insert the word, and it looked like divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Cyrene, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Or, they're drunk. We're going to intersect with this conversation about the Holy Spirit coming from our own experiences, our own stories, our own sort of backgrounds. Let me see if I can help you maybe bookend maybe the more extremes. I, I come from a tradition that believed in the Holy Trinity, for sure. We believed and talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But we didn't very often talk about the Spirit. I think looking back, I think in all honesty, we were just petrified of the Spirit. As we see in this passage as we're going to talk about, the Spirit is very hard to control. And we like control. I've shared with you my own story of sort of early in my Christian experience. I was very much part of a fundamentalist sort of group, and I went to a dispensational Bible college, and, and sort of at that time, there was a lot of conversations around what the Spirit could and could not do, and we had a lot of certainty in my tribe about that. I've shared with you my own story of getting engaged, and, and so you know that the in my Bible college, that the, the penalty for getting pregnant before you're married was you got suspended for six months. But if you spoke in tongues, you could never come back. <laughs> so I thought about this and thought about this, like, wow, the penalty, like how severe. And every, every fall, there would be, hey, where's Bill? He got filled with the Spirit over the summer. He ain't coming back. 
So it's just, it's just weird. I don't think that's as true today, but back then, like, we were just petrified. And, and then on the other extreme, my, one of my very, very best friends grew up in the Assemblies of God. His grandfather is, like, a famous Assemblies of God person. Like, Assemblies of God people know his name because of his grandfather. And he shares, like, in, in the Assemblies of God, it, it correlated with trusting Christ, always is mandated that you speak in tongues. And my, my friend talks about how for years he tried so hard and he never could speak in tongues. Like, it, he was always like this stepchild he felt in the family of God because he didn't get this gift of speaking in the tongues and he always felt bad and, and was always pressured and he tried and he, you know, he did like maybe lots of kids have, I've heard share. He would just fake it to get him off his back, you know, just kind of mumble something and say, hey, there it was, I got it, I'm done, good. And um, so I don't know where you're coming from. And you may be going, man, I thought the Holy Spirit was something like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I don't, you know, so you may be in the middle or, but we're coming with our own experiences and that will color how we read the scriptures. And I'm saying that because I don't know a ton. I'll tell you what my experiences have been. I'm not gonna give you in one little message all about the Holy Spirit but I hope we can have an interesting morning as we celebrate the day of Pentecost. Early in my Bible college experience, and I've already told you my bias and sort of where I was coming from and what life was like for me, I met my friend Luis. Luis was um, from Tijuana, Luis and Erica, and the Bible college president called April and I, and he said, hey, listen, we've got this guy coming. He's on his way, he's in the car, it's packed, and they are arriving tomorrow and they have no place to stay. Can they stay with you? And all we had, and we said, sure. I mean, we just had a fold-out couch in our little apartment. And so Luis and Erica and, and April and I, we became really good friends. And, I rem and Luis came, even though he's in a, this kind of Bible college, he came from a world that was a little more charismatic, Pentecostal. And I remember him telling me this story about his cousin Luis, his cousin, I mean, Luis's cousin, um, Jose, who was on the beach preaching to a group of high school kids. And the ocean, the Pacific Ocean is behind him there in Tijuana, and he's preaching to these kids, and he's getting frustrated, and, and, and he's, he's talking about the, the, the power and glory of God, and they're not getting it. And he's, he's preaching, he just goes, and, and, and the glory of God is like this. And in that moment, Luis talks, the, a pod of dolphins jump. And the glory of God is like this. And then they did it again on that side and never did it again. And I'm listening and my mouth is open. I'm going, wow, that can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I just, that isn't, I've never seen that. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and I hope it's helpful. We're going to look more at some of the, maybe the overlooked little moments that happen here in this day of Pentecost. I sort of, I suppose that before each sort of uh, idea, you could say where the Spirit is, where the Spirit is, there is clarity, but not precision. I really think it's important that we pay attention to the description that Luke gives, the author of the book of Acts, that he gives to what happened there on Pentecost. And this is how he says it, that there suddenly came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
and what looked like tongues of fire. I sense that he's like, he doesn't know quite what to call this. And like tongues of fire or like a mighty rushing wind is plenty good enough. I kind of had this idea, this is my own idea, I suppose, that much of our theological division comes and our argumentation and our, our fighting is when we, ex- when we insist on a precision instead of seeing a bigger picture. In the mid to late 1800s was the rise of the Impressionist art movement. You're, you would, you're familiar if we threw those up. You, you, Monet would be a, the, maybe the most famous example of an Impressionist. And, and Impressionism, in part, was birthed as a response to photography. You, you see, before we had photography, how would you capture an image and then sometime later want to see that image? Well, it was by realistic painting, which are beautiful, but very precise. In, in realism, there was an exactness. But Impressionism, because we had photography, there was, there was this idea that there's no more need in the same way for precision artistry. Now, the Impressionist became interested in how do we simply capture the essence? How do we see the beauty? How do we see actually something big? If you get very close to an Impressionist painting, it just looks like little dots. You can only see it as you step back. I think sometimes that would be helpful as we read through the scriptures. Often, it's okay to just go, it looks like. You can say you experience something without being able to give it an exactness. The exactness sometimes, not always, but sometimes can get us into trouble. Now these words may mean nothing to you, but you'll get the idea that Take for me as I entered into the Christian experience as a high schooler. I know even immediately there was these these camps I would call them, theological camps. So for instance, there was I, I threw this word out. It maybe doesn't mean anything to you. dispensational. Dispensational theology. What happens is when they're reading the Bible, it looks to them like God acted in a little different way in each period of history. So what happened in the garden looks a little different than what happened in the book of Judges, which happens, looks a little different than when we had a king, which looks a little different than when the church came, and so on. And that's just, and I think, well, that, that makes sense. I see where they got that. And, but then there was the people who are called the covenant theologians. And when they read the Bible, it looked like God was making sort of deals. He was always creating agreements with people. That there was an agreement in the garden, and there was an agreement with the nation, there was an agreement with the church. And so they become very concerned with that. And what's really interesting is the covenant and the began to sort of just fight each other. Even though I think both stories are very true, I see both of those. But it's when you try to draw strong conclusions that you get in trouble. For example, early in my Christian experience, I bumped into, I was in this Calvinist group. And Calvinists, when they read the Bible, they, they, they can't help but notice how God seems to always be in charge. 
Can't blame them for seeing that. And then there were my Arminian friends who when they read the Bible, they couldn't help but see how it sure seems like people make decisions and choices that count. That certainly seems true to me too. It was when each of their systems then began to come to what they believed were the logical conclusions. So some Calvinists drawing logical conclusions would say, therefore, since God is always in charge, God is happy. And God is in charge of outside of any decision a person could make to send somebody to hell for eternity, and it makes him happy to do that. Well, that's weird. I don't see that. But that is maybe a logical conclusion. And, and Arminians are going, well, since people can make so many decisions, it is not all Arminians, but some would say, therefore, it's all on you to sort of keep this relationship with God going. It's all about you and your decision and your effort. Those are sort of pejorative ways to describe. What I'm saying is it is because they have gotten too close to the painting, I believe. They want precision instead of being comfortable with it. Man, it sure looks like God is in charge. And it looks like people's decisions count. Where the Spirit is, there is clarity, but not precision. The Bible is written as a picture stories, not a textbook. Where the Spirit is, um, you'll find comfort. Jesus promised that, right? I'm going to send to you the comforter. But you're not going to find comfortable. Where the Spirit is, you're going to find peace but you're not going to necessarily find safety. Jesus prefaces in John 16 his, his prophesying and talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit with this. I'm telling you these things because I want to be honest. I don't want you to become disillusioned and discouraged. I'm telling you these things, he says, so you will not fall away. I, I, I think what he's saying is I'm, I want to be clear and I'm not trying to set you up. When I'm talking about comfort and when I'm talking about peace, that's going to look different than the way most humans want to experience comfort and peace. We want comfortable and we want safety. And Jesus goes out of his way to say that's not happening. How many times have I, how many times have I become discouraged in, in my constant lifelong struggle with weight? By buying something that put the word miracle and diet together. <laughs> I wish I had all the money back that I have spent on something that simply said it was a miracle. A miracle exerciser, a miracle diet. And you try them, and you know where this is going, right? There are no miracles in diet. This idea of being comforted and experiencing peace actually sort of is predicated on the fact that you will live in discomfort and danger. That's when those are experienced. It's not the absence of them, but it's in the midst of those. A lot of my theology, and again, this is back to, it's not precise, it's prefaced with I think. But I think so much of theology is about God with us. 
more than God doing, but God with us. Where the Spirit is, you're going to find, I don't quite know how to say this one very well, but it's like you're going to find a destroyer of religion. It says in, in this account, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. This is my way of reading the Scripture. But I don't think that the Spirit is ever about trying to make us religious people. In fact, I think he's trying to dismantle, that the work of the Spirit is to dismantle our religion. I'll give you my definition. My definition of religion is a system that I like or I want to ascribe to that is based on me to get God's approval. And even the word God in religion is something that I have created, not something that is outside of me to which I am submitting and surrendering. That's how I sort of wrap up the idea of religion. It's a system which will get God to like me. And I just don't like when sort of this talk of Jesus is also talked about in a religious way. You can be a devout Christian, but not empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit is wanting, I think, to disrupt. Part of the reason I say that is I think we're in, a, in an era and a time when the, there is something about if you're just devout, that's really all that matters. If you're, if you're just sincere, it doesn't really matter kind of what you're ascribing your devotion to. The name of your religion is unimportant. As long as you're devout, that's what God is after. And, 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 you, and you can perhaps see the thread that will always be that it's going to be on you. And I think everything about the story of the Bible is noticing it's not on you. And the Spirit is the one who's coming to free us from that. So in other words, these were really good people. Good people. Sometimes we've got a little bit of a, of, of a skewed idea of what it meant to be a devout Jew because so often we read and we sort of emphasize uh, hypocrisy in the, in the system. We think of all devout Jews as sort of this bad image of a Pharisee, one who is preaching and teaching something that he doesn't really intend to believe himself or something like that. But that isn't true of all Jews. As a matter of fact, if, if you think about why are, why are all these people from different, all this, this, these 16 geographic or ethnic identities, why are they gathered in Jerusalem? Because that's, that's the holy city. They've made some sacrifice to come live in a place that they think will increase their devotion, cre increase their access to God. That's how devoted they are. And as we'll see, where the Spirit is, there's a disruption of this idea that I can work hard to make myself acceptable to God. You're going to see, as I just already mentioned, there's these 16 different ethnic or geographic distinctions that 
Luke mentions. Where the Spirit is, there's diversity but unity. I won't go into a lot of details because I've talked about this before here, that uniformity is always the enemy of unity. You can't have unity and uniformity at the same time. In other words, as Jesus talked about, the, the, the great witness to the world would be their surprise at how we are hanging together. And so what he's inferring is that when people look into the window and they go, wow, look at all of those, and you, it doesn't matter what little groups you want to put together. Wow, look at all those white middle-class Republicans. That's amazing they're all sitting there together. Nobody says that. But what happens, what, what, what diversity within unity, what unity within diversity means is, wow, look what happens when Republicans or Democrats or people of various ethnicities are gathered together and the world's going, I can't understand why are those people all together loving each other equally? It's often, and it's, and it's good to think of racial diversity. What does it mean? But I think a, a, an easier place maybe to start is what does it mean to simply be economically together? Like we're, we're, what happens out there, who you are outside economically has no bearing on your acceptance inside. That was one of the first places where, where things became were startling in the new church as the Spirit was empowering the new church. Who you were outside of this thing called the church did not have the same weight inside. You're successful out there doesn't mean you're a leader here. Or because you are of certain ethnicity out there doesn't mean you're disqualified in here. One of my favorite places is in Romans 16 where you, you read this incredible list of the most diverse Jewish, Roman official, Gentile, slave, slave owner. It's, it, it's crazy. And the, and the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost, begins to look like that. One thing I've noticed recently and I don't know the answer, and it just makes me sad, is, is, is churches seem to be just um, age uniform. There's churches that are for young people, <laughs> and they have a few old farts hanging around. And then there's just old fart churches with a, you know, they let a couple, it's, 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 it's our tendency. Outside of being empowered by the Spirit, we're going to gather with the people that make us feel the most comfortable. And what that almost always means is the people who look exactly like me, who think like me, who have my experiences, who are my age. That's human. And how often does Jesus say, the Spirit empowers us to overcome just being human? How crazy is it that Jesus would say, and how do you think we could ever live this out when he says, here's what I want you to do. Love your enemies. Tell me one person who has an internal instinct that says, hey, I know. I'll love the person who's mean to me. I know this, will be, this is what I want to do. The person who doesn't like me. The person who wants me gone. I'm going to walk towards them. I'm going to bring them a present. That's what I'm thinking would be a good... That just isn't even human. And the Spirit begins to do these crazy, weird things. See, we think of the miracle of the Holy Spirit in these 
manifestations, which are beautiful, tongues or healings. I'm telling you, you step in love towards an enemy, that's miraculous and a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, that the Spirit will come and convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Where the Spirit is, where the Holy Spirit is, there is convicting, but never shaming. I'm going to draw a strong distinction between guilt and shame. And in my little simple brain, this is how I distinguish those. Guilt is something I have done for which I can ask forgiveness. Shame, there's no out. There's nothing I can say I'm sorry for to release myself from shame. Shame is the sense boiled down that in my essence, I am not lovable. Guilt is something I have done. I think the Holy Spirit is there to kind of whisper in your ear, hey, not a good idea. And there's a way out of that that the Bible calls confession. Shame, other than believing who Jesus says I am, there is no way out. I'll give you some that I struggle with. These are words. These are my shame I ams. I am a loser. I'm depressed. I'm fat. I'm stupid. I can't confess any of those and be forgiven for any of those. None of those are something I did. Now, that doesn't mean, as you're probably thinking, it doesn't mean that there aren't behaviors maybe that come out of some of that. So I'm a loser. I can say yesterday I was, I was lazy, AP. Oh, I, that's what I call my wife. I'm not being mean to her. She, her name's April. I, I always have to, people think I'm, I call her AP, and that's an endearing term doesn't sound that way to you. I understand saying it out loud. That sounds horrible. So I can say to her, I was just being lazy. And I didn't, I said I'd clean the dishes and I didn't or whatever. I'm sorry. I am a loser is not helpful. Or I'm depressed. I don't think there should be a, a morality connected to being depressed. I struggle with depression. Sometimes I have to say, to people I love, I've been isolating from you, and I'm sorry for that. I'm fat. I can confess, you know, yesterday I was, I was feeling scared, and so I ate a milkshake. It didn't help, but I just did it. It never helps, but I, like a dog to its vomit, I try over and over. That's a Bible reference. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's really a crude one, but I'm sorry. Um, in, in fact, I, I would say that whatever your particular, and this is, you know, you guys have heard me say this, I think that all of us have sort of a predisposed weakness to an area of addiction slash shame. They look different, but in a sense they're all the same. I don't think you're supposed to feel bad for that. 
It just is. The one that I've struggled with the most recently, I will share, is this feeling that I'm stupid. Now, and it's, you know, if you look at it sort of in a, in, in a remote way, there's no um, penalty in the Scripture for being, having less intelligence than another person, right? In fact, the Bible would even say you might have a bit of an advantage, right? Because it says that not very many really smart people who like to be able to make everything precise and fit together, not many of them are going to be drawn to this free gospel of grace. What I mean by stupid is I feel, I just feel inadequate. I, and I don't, maybe that's not even the right word. I just feel stupid. I'm in a big transition in my life. And I'm, I keep going, man, am I just stupid? Am I just, am I just feel, it's, all it is is just mistakes because I can't get this figured out? Is that what my life is? And it's a feeling. It's just a feeling of shame. And so I'm in the midst of this and, and, I know this sounds so crazy, so day before yesterday, I, I've been in the midst of a big project, and I had to return a bunch of stuff to Home Depot, and I didn't have the receipt, and they couldn't bring it up. I knew which credit card I used, and usually you can just use that credit card, and they find it, and they couldn't do that, so they had to give me store credit. It was 500, it's a big project, so it was $571 worth of returned materials. And I remember seeing the guy, I remember seeing the guy write 571 on the card. And this is so weird. And then yesterday afternoon, that's the last thing I remember. I, I have memory issues. Like, I know that about me. I have these big cognitive blanks. I can't remember things. I just can't remember them. And I feel stupid because I can't remember, but I don't know what to confess. What do you confess? I, I don't remember? Like, that's, that's not a sin but it makes me feel ashamed. As a matter of fact, I, shared it, I was sharing it last night at Evergreen, and somebody is a, is a cashier at, D, at Home Depot, and they told me to go back to the store, and they, all these things I could try, and I did, and, and at the end, they said, they, they went and looked at the security tape, and they said, I, we see the guy giving you the card. Because I couldn't even remember if he gave it to me. And they said, there's nothing we can do. And I have looked everywhere. And I just feel so, I feel stupid, and I'm embarrassed. And I need the money. <laughs> but that's not the issue. It's, do you see what I'm saying? That that's not the, that feeling of being shamed, that's not the, that has nothing to do with the Spirit. That is all about the enemy. Who says, at your essence, Carl, you're not lovable. And the Spirit has no shame. Although He will convict me. But He always gives me a way out. Lastly, where the Spirit is, and this one I think is good to remember, where the Spirit is, you may or may not see crazy manifestation stuff. I'm not saying it, it does happen, but that's not the point. Where the Spirit is, people will always talk about 
how great Jesus is. Always. That if you're, if you're in a, an environment where people cannot get their heads around how great Jesus is, like if they're obsessed with how unbelievably loving and forgiving, all the, I mean, we, we could just go on and on for days about who Jesus is. If you're in that environment, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the miracle, I believe, of the Holy Spirit. And it's why the Holy Spirit becomes difficult sometimes and is maybe the least talked about because he's obsessed with pointing us to Jesus. So I'm here to tell you on this day of Pentecost to sort of live in the tension of maybe you don't know a ton about the Holy Spirit and in one sense that's okay. Because he's probably been wanting you to talk about Jesus. Like I said, I'm just going to scratch the surface. Before we have communion, I'd like to practice a little bit of part of what it means to live in the Spirit. And so here's what I'd like for you to do. If you don't mind, because I think it might help you, you don't have to, you, but if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes. And I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll share in the miracle of communion. We sit quietly, listening for you, Holy Spirit, to come. And this is my prayer that you would whisper in each person's ear. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Each time we, we shared this experience, we remind ourselves and we recreate and we enter into the miracle of trusting Him, surrendering to His story and letting go of ours. I think that's the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, He took the cup
other way around. We're just going to have to label them for me, people. I just don't know. They both look brown to me. So this is the wine. This is the... Okay, I'm into precision here. And um, this... Yeah, that's right. So this is the juice. I'm so sorry. I'm trying not to feel shame that I can never remember this. This is, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new deal. But it's not about you. It's about him. So this will be juice, and this will be wine. The miracle is that if you can surrender to that, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so that's the invitation. Not that you will work your way up here and once again effort yourself into doing this. But you surrender. You surrender to this good story that apart from the Holy Spirit, I don't think you would. But that's the invitation today. Come and see that the Lord is good.